Welcome to the Baseline Community Church Podcast. Good morning, my friends. The, um, I know what you're thinking. The answer is yes. I put my hair up today. I did. I, I put it up, and if you didn't know, um, I've been growing up my hair this last year. If you didn't know that, it's valid because I've been wearing a beanie for like a year straight. Um, but I just, I've been around church long enough to know that when you're standing in front of a group of people, people notice things like your hair and what you're wearing. And some church people have thoughts. Some of you have opinions, okay? So I'm open to feedback. Um, I, will, I will gladly receive that. Um, I'm really glad you're here this morning. Um, super excited to open God's word. Hello, anyone online, uh, glad you're with us as well. I want to begin this morning with a quick story, and it's from a vivid memory that I have from a few years ago. I was standing on a patio in the Swiss Alps at a Christian conference center, and I was standing with a missionary at this missions conference, this retreat. And I was having a conversation with him. We were looking out at the Eiger and Monch and Jungfrau, these snow-capped mountains there in Interlaken. And this missionary uh, from Central Asia was just bearing his soul to me. And he was uh, sharing that before the conference even started, he had a moment with the Lord. He had a moment of encounter with the Lord before anything even started. And he shared that the moment he pulled up to this retreat center, the very moment he actually stepped onto the parking lot and got out of his car, he just started weeping. He said he was just undone by the mountains and the trees, these beautiful green trees and this trickling stream. And I remember he said it was so quiet. He said, I, I can't remember the last time I've experienced this sort of stillness. It's a missionary working in a really difficult place. And in that moment, God's character was on display in creation, right? His, his, his warmth and his peace and his glory was breaking through the mountains and the trees. And I think we've all experienced moments like that, right? Whether it's on a hike in the mountains or, you know, a walk at the beach or even sitting in your backyard, we all know what it's like to be so captivated by creation that we have to worship. We have to point to our creator and give him praise. Our hearts just sort of go like, wow, God, this is incredible. Can you picture a place like that in your mind, somewhere you've been, where you've just been so captivated that you have to worship God? You have to point to something. In the Old Testament, the the people of Israel actually experienced something similar to this in their temple, in their place of worship. Um, you might know that God gave really specific instructions to uh, design and decorate the temple, the great temple, King Solomon's temple, in a way that captured beauty from creation. You know about this? Anyone been reading First Kings recently? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Um, it's good, it's good. In 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7, there are two full chapters of instruction 
to Solomon for how to build and decorate the temple. And what I want to do is just read through these chapters. Um, it's, it's only going to take like 15 minutes or so. Um, just kidding. Um, no, I, I want to describe it to you. I want to describe the temple. So engage your imagination this morning. I know some of you are still waking up. Engage your imagination and just try to picture the temple with me, this garden-like temple. You approach these massive doors of King Solomon's glorious temple, and you see the doors are made out of olive wood. The interior of the temple is made out of cedar trees carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. Like Eden, it's guarded by cherubim built on a mountain entered from the east adorned with gold and precious stones. And there are two great pillars leading to the inner court that were adorned with lilies. And on the top, there were 200 pomegranates. Yeah, pretty cool. Uh, the panels on the side of the wall had pictures of livestock and wild beasts, oxen and lions. And as you walk into the court, you're surrounded by fresh water. All the light in the room beams from these golden lampstands shaped like trees. And in the description of these lampstands, it says they had branches and flowers and bowls that were made to look like almonds. This was the temple. I actually put a bunch of scripture references from Kings on there. You'll be able to see that. And you can read it for yourself. Um, it's all there in the Bible, and it's really beautiful because it captures Eden. It captures the Garden of Eden in this place of worship. So why all these specific features? One biblical scholar, John Salehammer, he says, because it's precisely these features of the temple that were features of the Garden of Eden. The very thing that the temple was intended to recall in Genesis 1 and 2, the writer goes to great lengths to show that humankind was created to worship and to enjoy fellowship amid the trees, animals, gold, precious stones that God had put there in the garden. And the scholar goes on to say that all of this construction and decoration, it was all about reminding God's people of his original intent, of a shalom, of restoring all things. So the point of all of this is that if you were to walk into Solomon's temple, you would have automatically thought of the garden. You would have automatically thought of Eden and what God was up to in terms of restoring the garden here on earth. One author, Andrew Wilson, he describes the temple this way. He says, it would have felt like an orchard, a well-watered garden, a paradise, the architecture and decor literally spoke to Israel. The God of the garden lives here. Welcome. So as we have been thinking about this garden theme over the past number of weeks, we've, we've been talking about the garden being restored. And the question I want us to ponder today is how should we respond to this restoration. Don did a brilliant job last week of talking about this promise of renewal, that God is actually going to renew all things. So how should we respond to that promise? If we really believe in God's garden restoration project, then how should we respond? 
And what I want to do is narrow in today and focus on one of the primary responses, which is to worship, specifically through singing, worship through song. Now, if you've been around our church for any length of time, uh, you would know that we emphasize our lives as whole life worship, right? That Romans 12, every moment is an act of worship, every decision, right? Worship is all about having Jesus at the center of your life. But in Scripture, there is something unique about singing worship, right? There's something just in the Bible alone, there is something going on with singing. And we know that, that worship is not equivalent with music, right? But music is one vehicle. It's one way that we express our worship to God. So what I want to do uh, with our time is just ask two simple questions. One is, why do we sing? And then the other, to go a level deeper, is to consider what's happening when we sing. When we sing as the gathered people of God, what's actually happening in this space? And then I want to just leave us with one image of Jesus, a really encouraging picture of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, go to Psalm 96. You can turn there or scroll there on their phone or feel free to follow along on the screen. Let me just read uh, the first few verses for us. Hear the word of the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Why do we sing? The first thing is it's a command. It's a command in scripture to sing. In this passage alone, there are six imperatives to sing Sing, sing, proclaim, praise, declare. And in scripture, there's actually 400 references to singing. And at least 50 of those are direct commands to sing. They're imperatives. They're non-negotiables. And here are a few that will be up there just from the Psalms alone. There's so many scriptures we could go to. But I just want you to see visually that this is all over the place in Scripture. And you likely already know this if you've spent any amount of time in the Psalms. There is so much singing in the Bible. Um, And it's a command. And I'll be honest, as a millennial, I don't love commands. I'm more drawn to, like, invitations or suggestions or, like, you know, maybe you would consider this. Command, it can feel like sort of a harsh word at times. Um, But really, all the commands in Scripture are about wooing us into deeper relationship with God. That's his heart. It's actually wooing us into deeper joy and deeper fulfillment in God. And I think he commands this because in his kindness, I think he knows that sometimes it's going to be hard to sing. Sometimes it's going to be really hard to sing. I know for myself, um, as your worship pastor, just you know, speaking to my family here, there are some Sundays where I don't want to sing. There are some Sundays where I come to church 
and I'm not feeling it. I'm not in that emotional place of feeling like I just want to celebrate God. And that's when it's really helpful to go back to Scripture and anchor my worship in Scripture rather than my feelings in a given moment. It's a command. And often I have to follow the example of Psalm 103 that says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and command my own soul to worship. Right? You ever done that? You say, hey, soul, we're going to worship today. (laughs) Okay, we're going to sing. It's a command. The second thing is that singing is a part of the story in Scripture. It's part of our story. Our spiritual ancestors have always been a singing people. Do you know the first worship song recorded in Scripture? Anyone? You remember that moment in Exodus when the people of God are delivered from Egypt and God parts the Red Sea? Exodus chapter 15. First thing they do is that Miriam leads them in a worship song. This is the first worship leader in Scripture, and they sing to God, praising him for deliverance. There are so many stories. Hannah sings after Samuel is born. David sings to calm King Saul. Deborah led her people in a song of praise after a great victory. Ezekiel sings multiple laments. Amos sings a dirge. Mary sings as she anticipates the birth of Jesus. Paul and Silas sing while chained up in prison. Even God sings. Zephaniah 3.17 says, God will rejoice over you with singing. He's a singing God. And one thing I love about all these different stories is that they, they captured different kinds of songs. There are songs celebrating God's deliverance. Right? Like that song that Miriam sing, sang. And I think of that as, as singing after the breakthrough. Right? Once you've made it through the storm, once you've got to the other side, you praise God. And then there's songs of faith, anticipating the victory. Like in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat, he, he calls the people to prayer and fasting, and they're anticipating this invasion. And what do they do? They sing. He actually appoints singers to go to the front lines of battle. You know about that story? They sing as their battle strategy. They literally, they say, the battle is not ours. The battle is yours, God. We're going to sing and worship you. They sing in faith before the breakthrough, anticipating victory. And then there's songs that acknowledge God's suffering, God's sufficiency in our suffering. This is Paul and Silas, right? Being wrongly accused, beaten, thrown into prison. They sang. They praised God. And this is when you sing when breakthrough feels impossible. Amen. Thank you, D. Amen. But you sing anyways. Amen. This kind of singing is really hard, but there is so much power in it. You may find yourself in that place today of singing before the breakthrough, trying to have faith, trying to anticipate victory, and it may feel impossible. But we sing about God's sufficiency. Singing is part of our story. It's part of our spiritual lineage. The third thing, um, if you're taking any notes, you can write this down. 
It's a natural response to following the way of Jesus. Singing is a natural response. Ephesians 5 says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Genuine worship is a natural overflow of the Spirit-filled life. It's a natural overflow of the Spirit-filled life. Our worship is, is, is like an outpouring of whatever's going on in our hearts. It all comes from our heart posture. And Paul, he also writes to the church in Colossae, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. It's Colossians 3. So in the same way that living in step with the Spirit leads to this natural response of worship, dwelling in the Word actually leads to worship as well. Dwelling in God's word. Have you ever experienced that? Like when you just sit in God's word and dwell in, that word means to make your home, to make your home in a scripture. You open up Psalm 23 on a Wednesday morning and you just sit in it and listen for the Holy Spirit's voice. You will likely be led to a place of worship and praising God. It's reminded me of the way that my family eats meals together. And um, I'll just say, I am a verbal eater. I am very, like, as I'm eating, I will talk about the experience of ingesting food. And I sort of, Sierra, my girlfriend's nodding her head. She's like, oh yeah. It's like, like groans and like all sorts of noises. And I'm like commenting on every part of the food. And it's because that was my family culture, right? Every family has a culture. And every family has a culture around meals as well, and the table. And my family has a high value for the table and eating good food. And the thing that we do is that like the first 10 or 15 minutes of every meal, we just talk about the food. Like we literally only talk about every aspect of the food. And we sort of converse in like groans and like ooing and aahing over every bite. And someone will, like my sister will say, the salmon is just like perfectly grilled. And I'll say like, yes, and it's so flaky and it just delicately lands on my tongue. And then my dad will move to the asparagus and it's like the olive oil and it's crispy. And the salad, like the citrus and oil come together. You know, the candied almonds and avocado on the salad. And we just go on and on. My poor brother-in-law. That was not part of his family. So him and, him and, my, and Sierra, they, they graciously have adjusted to, you know, they kind of let us do our thing. And they're like, let's get to the real conversation. We dwell in the meal, right? And it's a natural response of taking the time to notice every attribute of the food. And it's the same with our worship. When we take time to dwell in God's word and just dwell in his presence, and notice the attributes of God, and then take the time to call them out, we will worship. That is what it is to worship. (laughs) 
got so excited about eating, I have no idea where I am in my notes. I'll be totally honest. I'm like, I have no idea. I don't even know. I'm, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Um, oh, yes, yes, thank you. Um, C.S. Lewis, he said the same thing. It's, this is a great quote. That's so good. That's so good. Oh, C.S. Lewis said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. So good. So singing is a command. It's part of our story, uh, and it's a natural response. And I want to go a, a level deeper and think about what's happening in this space when we sing, okay? What's happening? And I just want to cover... Three things briefly. There are actually so many different things that happen in worship and in scripture too. If you, if you really pay attention, there's so many different things. But for the sake of time, I just want to highlight three today and I'll save the rest for another sermon. Um, the first is this, singing sharpens our focus on who God is and what he has done. Singing sharpens our focus. In other words, it forms our thoughts it actually helps us think about the right stuff. Um, going back to, to Psalm 96, in verse 4 it says, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He's to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. You see, when we sing a song like this, like Psalm 96, there are all sorts of things that, that are going on in our minds when we take the time to think about the words. It reminds us who God is and actually what he has done and what he's up to. I think of it as like, oh yeah, moments. You know when someone like reminds you to do something that you forgot? Anyone? And, and then you're like, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, like I know that. Or, or someone reminds you of something that you knew a long time ago, and you say, oh, oh yeah, of course, yeah. That's what's going on. It's like, like, oh, yeah, God really is great. He really is powerful. He really is control. Oh, yeah, he really is worthy of my time. You know what? I've been giving too much attention to my phone or Netflix or to what other people think of me. God is the one who's worthy of my attention. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's, there's idols. I have some idols in my life, right? Oh, yeah, I've made an idol out of money and financial security. I've made an idol out of career ambitions. I've made an idol out of the success of my children. I'm going to bring these idols to you, God, in worship. Oh, yeah, God, you made the heavens. You're in charge of it all. I don't have to worry. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. All these things can happen in a moment of worship. Much of our worship in our minds is simply these oh yeah kind of moments. Words capture the attention of our minds and melodies actually cement them in our memory. You know that? That's why we teach kids the alphabet with a song. Because the letters are one thing, but the melody actually cements it in the memory. I bet everyone here knows the alphabet song, right? <laughs> It's powerful. Dallas Willard, he says, the ultimate freedom we have as human beings is the power to select what we allow our minds to dwell on. In other words, we have the power to choose what we think about. 
the power to choose what we think about. And singing is one of the primary ways we do that. It sharpens our focus. The second thing that's happening is singing is an embodied act. It's an embodied act that invites us to a posture of surrender. God created us as embodied creatures, and he designed us in the most beautiful way in that our souls and our bodies are intricately connected. What we do in our bodies affects what we think about and how we feel. It's really important to God. And the Psalms actually talk a lot about this. They talk about how to engage your bodies in worship. I'm, just, I'm not going to read all these verses, but there's a few, um, a, a few verses up there that have to do with kneeling and clapping and dancing and lifting our hands. All of these different invitations in worship. And it's, it's similar um, it's similar to our minds in that we can think, we can choose what we think about in the same way we can choose how to engage our bodies. I think the writers of scripture, they knew what scientists have now proven, and that is that our hearts and bodies are connected. What we do with our bodies affects our posture in worship. Eugene Peterson, he, he said in the book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, We can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. That's so good. I love this quote. We can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Kneeling, clapping, dancing, raising your hands, these are all invitations to engage your body and act your way into a posture of surrender, even when you're not feeling it. I was thinking about it like this, right? We sing the song, I Surrender, the the great hymn, right? I could stand there and sing, I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Right? Or you could get on your knees and cry out to God, I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. It does something to you. It really does. I really believe that in the scriptures, this is a mere invitation for us. You don't have to. Obviously, all of us are going to express our worship differently. That's the beauty of the body. I just want to um, encourage you in that, that God created us with a certain personality. Some of us gravitate towards worshiping God in our minds and thinking about the words and just sitting there and, and you're reflective and pensive and that's wonderful. Some people gravitate towards engaging their bodies and you're more drawn to the emotional aspects of worship. That's wonderful. Scripture gives permission 
for all of it. And God is so pleased with any kind of act of worship. The challenge I would just give you is to consider what's your natural inclination in worship and then try something different. Try something different. It it will probably be uncomfortable at first, but just see what happens. Just see what happens. The beauty of the body of Christ is that it is actually our diversity and difference that allows us to come together to create one unified body. And that leads to the last thing I want to say, and that is that singing unites us as the people of God. Singing unites us as a family. It's one of the most powerful communal disciplines that brings us together as God's family. One pastor, Carolyn Gillette, she said, when Christians sing together, the blending of our voices bears witness to the fact that we are made one in Christ. The variety of voices, high-pitched or low-pitched, on-key or off-key, some soaring to the rafters and others barely above a whisper, remind us of the wonderful diversity in the church. Singing together can remind us that we are not in this alone. We are part of a community. We are not solos. We are part of a choir, a congregation. You are not in this alone. Singing has great power to unite us and bolster our faith, galvanize our faith. It makes it strong when we sing with one another. Not only does it unite us here in this room and outside and online, united by the Spirit, but it actually unites us with the global church unites us to that missionary who I was telling you about in Central Asia, unites us to Christians in Beijing, in Mexico City, right, in Afghanistan, in Northern Africa, even in Ukraine right now, Christians are singing out to the same God today. Beyond that, it actually unites us to heaven. In Revelation 4 and 5, it talks about this ongoing flow of worship that never ends. The angels are crying out to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we actually tune in to that worship. That's why I say sometimes, worship doesn't start at 9 a.m., right? We just tune in at 9 a.m. That's when we're tuning in. In this little corner, Baseline Community Church, it's like the radio. It never stops, right? Does anyone remember, you know what a radio is? It never stops, right? This is an ongoing flow of music that you tune into, and that's what we're doing when we're worship. We're tapping into this portal that opens to heaven, and it unites us with the heavenly chorus. You're actually participating in something that's so much bigger than you, so much bigger than your situation puts things in perspective, we realize that God's garden restoration project is actually taking place. The heavens are breaking through into earth, and in a moment of worship, we can get a glimpse of it. Singing unites us as a family. I want to leave you with one final image, just a picture of Jesus. I think it will encourage you. Uh, And then we're actually going to come forward and partake in the bread and cup, and we'll sing a few songs together. But this image is one 
of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed in Matthew 26. And you probably know this story. You know that Jesus was having a meal with his friends. And during that meal, he predicted that one of his disciples would betray him. That was Judas, who was sitting there with him. And after the meal, he confronted Peter and said, you're going to disown me? And Peter said, I never will. Right? And in that moment, after the meal, Jesus is already knowing that he's going to be arrested. He's moments away from being at the Mount of Olives in the garden, crying out to God, take this cup from me. And he's anticipating the pain of the cross and embarrassment and the shame of hanging on a criminal's cross. All of that is happening in that moment after dinner. I just imagine with with all of those thoughts and emotions and just the weight of that swirling in Jesus' head, what does he do in that moment? What does he do in that moment after the meal, before they went to the Garden of Gethsemane? Matthew 26, verse 30, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This was right after the Last Supper. So it's actually something that I never realized. I've read through Matthew many times. I never realized that they sang a worship song after the Last Supper before he went to the garden where he was arrested. Jesus and his disciples sang in that moment, in that moment of pain and confusion. They sang a song of praise right in the middle of losing his closest relationships, being betrayed, knowing that his arrest was imminent, anticipating the pain of the cross, right smack dab middle in that, Jesus sang to his father. Jesus sang even when it didn't make sense. That's what I want you to hold on to. Jesus sang even when it didn't make sense. He sang before the breakthrough. This is why we follow the example of Jesus. And we sing songs that say things like, I'll raise a hallelujah. I'm going to sing in the middle of the mystery. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. We do that because Jesus did it. So would you consider singing even when it doesn't make sense? Would you consider that today? Even when it's before the breakthrough. Consider lifting up a shout of praise. Maybe it's just a whisper. I can only imagine that Jesus sang in that moment because he knew what was possible in a moment of worship. I think he knew that it would center his mind on the cross, on the Father's will. I think he knew that it would help put his literal body in a posture of surrender. I think he knew that it would unite him with his disciples in that moment. Imagine if we became the kind of people that had that faith for what could happen in a moment of worship. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we just give thanks to you this morning for your word, how your kindness is displayed in the scriptures. And I thank you that when There is so much in our culture that is shaky ground. We can stand firm on your word. We can stand firm knowing 
that your spirit is here, that your presence empowers us. And Lord, I pray that, that you would give us a song, put a song in our hearts, make us worshipers, make us just love adoring you in whatever way we express that, God. And Lord, would you just sift through any clutter in this moment? Holy Spirit, just come and speak your words to your children. Highlight whatever you want us to hold on to today. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, every child said, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Baseline Community Church, please go to baselinecc.com.